Well, church, we're in for a doozy. I uh, want to just jump right in for the sake of time and to honor you and honor this topic. I want to start off by reading a few quotes from people, and I want you to guess as you listen, what in the world are these people referring to? The piercing to the heart feeling when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you, like your heart is ripped open, they're just picking at the pieces. This may sound pretty harsh to someone who has never experienced blank. However, for me, it happens in some degree almost every time I'm out in public places with people around me. Another person reported, it's like some creepy serum injected all over my body to create an odd, numb, yet painful feeling coursing through my blood vessels and seeping into my flesh. Now, what in the world am I talking about? There are seats over here if anyone's looking. Every one of these people that I just quoted are speaking about their experiences as a transgender person. In our society, there are fewer, hotter topics right now than our understanding of gender. And this morning, our text leads us to tackle this subject. One beautiful and sometimes frustrating realities of us being committed at All People's Church to preach through the Bible is that sometimes we are going to tackle and come upon texts and subjects that us preachers would naturally want to avoid. Indeed, I, I want you to know that this has been one of the most uncomfortable, difficult sermons for me to ever prep for. And yet, the Bible addresses it, and so must I. And one of the reasons I started with these painful quotes as I begin this message is that so often we address this topic impersonally. And yet, it's important to keep at the forefront that it's not just a topic. Gender is not just a topic, it's people. People who we love, people who are family members for some of us, people who are among us who struggle greatly, people who need love and compassion like you and I need love and compassion, people who the church has historically failed in some many ways. So I want to clarify, in light of this really crazy, divisive topic, what I will not cover due to length. I had 10,000 words written in my first draft. And then I had a team that lovingly labored over it once I gave them 6,000 words and they helped it get down to 4,500 words or 5,000 words. So, so I just want you to know that there's so much here that I can't tackle. So let me tell you what I'm not going to get into if you are quite learned in this or you have a lot of questions. I'm not going to talk about intersex, eunuchs, brain sex theory, how to parent a child who struggles with gender dysphoria. I'm not going to talk about how to use, uh, think about trans people using bathrooms that are not con uh, consistent with their biological sex. I'm not going to talk about locker rooms, trans in sports, and breaking records. I'm not going to talk about if we should use biological pronouns or preferred pronouns, what people should do if they've already transitioned, how do we respond to gender ideologies taught in public schools, uh, talk about the trans detransition movement and how it's being suppressed, talk about non-binary or gender fluid or the danger of cross-sex hormone therapy or about rapid onset gender dysphoria that is wrecking thousands of young adults, especially females. There's a 5,000% increase in the last decade of, of uh, younger girls who are uh, uh, reporting that they are now trans in the UK. And then how these surgeries are creating irreparable physical and hormonal harm to many young adults. 
There's a lot here. And I said that very quickly for a point to help you know that this is not something I'm going to like just conquer in one sermon and like I nailed it, just hit it out of the park. I'm not going to satisfy anybody here. Some of you are going to be deeply upset that I did not go further. Some of you are going to say that I went too far. So I just want you to know that I'm going to disappoint everyone here. And, and so me as a recovering narcissist and a people pleaser, I need to be okay with that. You will not all like what I'm about to say. And that's probably a good thing because if you say everything that you, if I say everything that you like and you agree with everything I say, then perhaps we're just another echo chamber, patting ourselves behind the telling each other what we already know to be true without challenging our thoughts. What I will be addressing with our short amount of time is what does the Bible teach about gender? How do we get to this cultural moment? And how shall we live and love as a church? There's a lot more to talk about. I'm going to put up a slide right now, or or at least someone's going to put up a slide. There is a handful of resources that I recommend if you want to go deeper. You can keep going. You can just look at it. You guys can read, I think. Next one. Embodied. And then finally, Strange New World, which is the bridge version of uh, like a 400, 500-page version of this book. Okay? Those are helpful resources that I'm going to punt towards, encourage you to look if you are interested. And with that said, I will be in the hallway. If you go out this door after the gathering, there's a hallway and a large classroom. I'm going to be sitting there after the gathering. And if you have any questions, comments, shocks of outrage, or if you want to pray with me, I'm going to be there as long as, it, as you need. So I just want you to know that will, that's available for you uh, this morning. Okay, so let me remind you, last week, Pastor Ross preached on what is the image of God. Something that a lot of us say, people say on, on TV, image of God, and you ask most people, they're not even sure what it means, all right? And so I'm not going to try to re-preach it because Pastor Ross did a fantastic job, so please take a listen in our archives if you missed it. Now, we're going to be focusing on verse 27, male and female, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Please note, brings more definition to the fact that the image of God is constituted females. Why is that important? One of the most radical truths that come from Genesis is that male and females are equally made in the image of God. They equally share the tremendous glory and privilege of representing God, This does not mean that they will always do the same things, but they are equally important and valuable before God. That is not historically intuitive. History has said the opposite. Might makes right. This is countercultural and radical. And any modern day movements that say different are actually hitchhiking on the Bible's trailblazing ways. They've just cut out the origins of why they believe such a thing. Equality doesn't mean sameness. In fact, the equality complements each other richly. Let me share a quote from Sam Albury. Each gender, therefore, needs and complements the other. Each helps, each, we need each other. This is how God has designed us. When we attempt to make men and women somehow interchangeable, we are subtracting not just from God's word, but from his blessing. It's important to note that 
The word create, bara in Hebrew, is repeated three times in just this one verse. Remember, I said in the Genesis series that God is the only one. Man makes, man shifts, man shapes, but God is the only one who creates. And the fact that it's repeated three times in this just one verse, and we haven't seen this verb since the first verse, is, is important. It's important to know that humanity is unique. We are the crown of all of God's creatures. There's in, intentionality behind how God has created man and woman. We are not by accident. It's essential to note that because distinguishing between males and females, it's the first time in our chapter that we see that in Genesis. For animals, that distinction, male and female, we don't even hear about their gender distinction until Noah's Ark. We only hear about their differences of species and kinds. Why is that significant? Why am I saying all this? Well, because this, being male and female is no accident of nature. God has designed a distinction for humans, either male or female. It is God's idea, not creatures. If you wholeheartedly accept macro evolution, then the fact that we have male and female, we need each other to, to, to multiply is actually against a good design for evolutionary theory. We should become asexual, actually. Man, I'm gonna get off topic. That's not in my manuscript. So I promised myself that to stay under time, I would just read it. And I'm like, I don't wanna lie to you guys but I'm gonna to try to read as much as possible, even though you guys know I typically don't read when I preach, but I'm trying to stay on topic because there's so many things that I had to cut and so many worthy things of your time and attention. Okay, that's not my main script either. I say all this because it is God's idea to have male and females, not culture, not man's. It is not psychologically determined, but physically grounded in God's original design. Now, what does God think about his original design? Well, look at verse 31, how the chapter concludes. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He's repeated over and over throughout the creation narrative, good, 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 good. And now, after he creates man, representing him, his likeness, his image, he says, very good. There is purposeful design to all that he does. This means that we must respect God's design and see it as very good, even if we don't feel, fully understand it or resonate with that goodness. Now, this is where things get complicated because in our current culture, we do not see male and female distinction as clear as I just stated it, nor do we consider it as very good. And the reality is things didn't stay very good after the fall. Let me kind of tackle this idea of sex and gender as many of you guys have probably picked up in our culture, there has been a shift over the years where the idea of sex and gender have been differentiated. When I grew up, I thought they were the same. Sex is gender, gender is sex. But, and some of you, if you're listening, saying, Sam, you're right about biological sex, but that is not what we're talking about. Gender is different. Now, let me share a couple of quotes from different organizations to help you understand what where our culture, how our culture is just defining gender. Let's look at the human rights campaign. 
One's, this is what gender is. One's innermost concept of self as male and female, a blend of both or neither. How individuals perceive themselves and what they call themselves. One's gender identity can be the same or different from their sex assigned at birth. So gender is what we call ourselves, a label we choose. We discover our gender identity. It's not given to us. So this is where transgenderism comes in. Glad says this, gay and lesbian alliance against defamation. Transgender is a term to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex the doctor marked on their birth certificate. So according to some, sex and gender are different. Sex is biological. Everyone has a sex unless you are intersex, and that's a whole other conversation, while gender is discovered and or chosen by the individual. And a person who is transgender then uh, personally identifies differently from their biological sex. Although these terms are not the same, I want to share with you one more term. I know we're in the weeds right here, but it's called gender dysphoria. The DSM-5, if you're familiar with that, gender dysphoria is described as this. It's a psychological term for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. The word distress here is key here. We speak about situa situations where someone has experienced this for some time and it's caused great distress and pain and challenges for the person. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine the unending pain of someone who experiences gender dysphoria? Always feeling like you're not what you look like you are. We all know what it feels like to feel left out, every one of us. But imagine feeling left out an entire gender. That's half of the world. And on top of that, it's even more than that. If you are struggling with gender dysphoria, you don't even associate with either gender perfectly. You don't feel accepted in yours. You don't feel accepted in the other. And so there is deep senses of loneliness, shame, and alienation or rejection. And let me ask you a question this morning is, do you feel compassion for anyone who struggles with that? Do you feel compassion for them? Compassion for that. See, here's the crucial argument that our culture has raised and that you and I have to answer. If there's a difference between your biological sex and what gender you most identify with, which one wins? If there's a dissonance, difference, which one comes out on top? Before we can answer that question, I want to explore the origins of the gender confusion that we find ourselves in. So let, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to start with biblical foundations. Then we're going to understand how philosophy and history has distorted our understanding and then how gender, modern-day gender stereotypes have distorted and affected us. And then I'm going to give you good news for all of us at the end. So let's talk about the origins. First of all, when we get to chapter 3 in Genesis in a few weeks, we will see that because Adam and Eve rejected God's rightful, loving, wise, good rule, they rejected their creator the world and all creatures, including us, are plunged into spiritual and physical darkness. Their seed is the seed of all of our sin. Their sin was the seed of all of our sin. And we have followed in their footsteps. All of us here, including myself, have followed in their footsteps at some level. 
And this results in corruption in every sphere and facet of our bodies and minds. We are all born with varying physical and mental brokenness. But even more, because we all have rejected God's rule, as well as him as the source of all our longings and our purpose, all of us here are naturally yearning and looking for life in the wrong places. If God isn't God for us, we become our own authority, our own God, our own authority for truth, purpose, and happiness, and we seize it for ourselves. We define it for ourselves. That, I would say, is probably the most significant consequence of the fall. And if you understand this basic truth, then so many problems in our world and our culture become clear. They're not easier, but they're clearer and understandable. The Apostle Paul picks up this kind of language in Romans chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. The creation looks forward to the day. What will happen? When it will join God's children in glorious freedom from what? From death and decay. For we know that all creation, that includes you and me and all, all this earth, has been groaning in the pain up to the present time. There's a lot here, but I want to highlight that basic Orthodox Christian theology teaches that all of our bodies, without exception, are wrestling with death and decay. We are one day closer to dying. We are under the curse. We are broken. As a result of this and many others, one tangible result is that we will all struggle with our bodies, with creation. Struggle that sometimes will feel like childbirth. And I don't want to make light of all the women here who know what that feels like, but Paul is using this language on purpose. It's the kind of pain that feels like you're going to die and you can't take it any longer. So if you're here and you are experiencing psychological and physical pain that feels like you're going to die, let me just say, I'm so, so sorry for your pain. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God created the world, but this is the new normal we are living under until Jesus comes back and resurrects our bodies. So if we understand the results of the fallen of the fall, we ought not to be surprised that there are problems with our minds, with our hearts. In fact, we ought to expect it. And so parents, if one of your children at some point of their life starts to tell you that they feel like they're the opposite gender, you should not be shocked. You should expect that there's going to be confusion in all of us at some levels. It will manifest in different ways, but it will manifest in all of us at some level. But to say that a condition is result of the fall can sound mean. I know that. But that does not mean that you're directly at fault. Just like you would not say that someone who is born without a limb or has glasses or has cancer is at fault. Likewise, someone who experiences the crippling effects of gender dysphoria is not directly at fault and should be treated with compassion and understanding. Now listen to this important point I'm about to make. However, we are all responsible with how we respond to the varying degrees of brokenness in our body, minds, and hearts. We are all responsible. I'm responsible for my wayward heart, for my twisted desires that come up inside of me. You are responsible. Now that we understand all of us have brokenness and corruption in our bodies and minds, without exception, 
We should expect it to manifest in all kinds of painful and destructive ways. But now, beyond understanding how the fall has broken us, let's understand worldview. Now, what is worldview? Worldview is the lens in which you and I wear and how we see and interpret the world. For most people, they have never identified or looked into why they see the world the way they do. It's just the lenses you have on, like contact lenses, but you don't know you have them on. And so let's understand the worldview lenses that have been put upon our Western culture to get us to where we are at today. Well, first of all, let me put up a graphic on the screen. This is from the book, Love Thy Body. What Nancy Piercy does so well in her first book, Total Truth, as well, is that over time, and we'll get into some of the origins of the philosoph uh, philosophical origins of this, we in our culture in the West have created a division between one and another realm. The scientific realm, which is our objective, uh, objective scientific uh, re reality, and then a theological or, or self um, zone, a private, subjective, relativistic zone. What, what I mean by that, I know that sounds like a lot, I'm, I'm trying to summarize it for the sake of time, is that our society has divided our world into two realms that stay separate. In other words, so we as a culture and sometimes as a church have divided the inner self from the outer self. And in our culture, when there's a difference between the inner self and the outer self, guess which one wins? The inner self which we're going to get, about, get into more in the next section. It's almost as if our bodies are of no significance. They're just what we have. Circumstantial. How, how am I saying that word? Cir circumstantially? That's right. Thank you. This, that orthodox Christian theology does not make this divorce like we do. Let me bring up Sam Aubrey again. Notice how Adam was made. It was the opposite of how many people today view themselves. God didn't make a soul called Adam and then look around for something physical to put that soul into, as though soul was the real Adam and his body was the equivalent of a Tupperware container to store it in. No, God actually started with matter. He formed a body from the ground, which was then brought to life. God breathed life to it. And so often in the church and also in our culture, we have this body-soul dichotomy. We separate them. And yet, biblical theology, true biblical, what the Bible teaches, it's robustly together. The body is important in the beginning, it's important now, and it will be important when God renews our bodies in this entire world and cosmos. The body is not insignificant, hence why Jesus was raised in a body. And he still has a body, even in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he'll come back in a glorified body but where do we get to this point where the inner self automatically triumphs over biology? Well, let's talk about the history of thought. If you want to understand more, remember that one book by Carl Truman. I recommend you take that look at that. I'm taking a lot from him here. Truman starts with Rosset and the Romantics in the 18th and 19th century. They're the ones who popularized the notion that the voice inside of you is the thing, the one thing that determines your identity. And then three more significant thinkers of the later, latter 19th century are Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Charles Darwin, Darwin. In each of their own ways, they demolished the idea that human beings are made in the image of God. If we are not defined by the creator and let him have the authority over our lives and our identity and our purposes, then what, we do, what do we get? 
then creation gets to define those things. Creation gets to manipulate matter and creation and however we determine it to be. And then Sigmund Freud, many of you guys are familiar with that name, Sigmund Freud, he enters the scene. More than anyone else, he's the man that establishes the fundamental nature of humans is sexual desire at the core of our identity. So everything is sexualized. And so what the sexual revolution has done as a result of these thinkers and more is to say that inside, at your most fundamental level, you are a sexual being and your sexual desires define and determine who you are. And the sexual revolution simply says, therefore, we should be able to express those publicly, socially, and culturally. And to the extent we are being prevented from doing that is the extent we are prevented from being authentic. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, calls it expressive individualism. I know I'm throwing it a lot to you. Hopefully this is helpful. If it's not, I'll know in time. So let's, let's check out this quote. Expressive individualism is the idea that we are at our most authentic or most genuine when we give outward social, cultural, and personal expression to that which we feel inwardly. The real me is what lives inside. And to the extent that I'm able to express that outwardly is the extent of how authentic I can be. A good example is Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, as many of you guys saw his transformation before our eyes. His interview with Diane Sawyer, he talks about transitioning. He says this, finally, I'm going to be able to be who I've always been. I'm no longer to live a lie. I want to call you here to reject this mindset without, hear me, diminishing the importance of our feelings and emotions. This is very complicated to do. Track with me for a second. Both of those are important. Our feelings and emotions are important, but they are not supreme. They are not authoritative. They are not inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is our authority. The Bible never changes true. It's a rock that you can stand on. Your emotions and your feelings are not. You're not. I mean, every single one of us here have times where we thought crazy things, and we knew with all of our heart that was true. And you know, when you look back in history, you were dead wrong. Your feelings betrayed you. You were wrong about what you felt and thought was true. And I want to reject this thing in the church where we stuff our emotions and feelings. We're not allowed to talk about them, so you need to. But you need to bring them out humbly, not as the authority, but humbly. And we must reject this culture's thinking that's been shoved down our throats, church, that our feelings are reality. And if you feel something, it's true. It may be true. It may not. You need to vet it with the truth. Now, let us explore how our culture has been fueled and warped by our gender stereotypes. Let me talk about warped gender stereotypes. So here's the thing. There's a spectrum of stereotypes in our world. On one hand, we have those who have washed away every single distinction and difference between male and female. Emasculated men, defeminized women where they're interchangeable and the beauty and uniqueness that God created them is completely erased and both suffer. On the other hand, you have many who have drawn very, very rigid and neat boxes and lines of what males and females ought to be and what they are that are often more culturally influenced and coming out of biases rather than the Bible. And we box people in and say, this is how you look like. And if you're not, you're not a man or not a woman. Act like a man. Those are two extreme 
on the spectrum that I want both of all of us to reject. Author John Mark Homer in his Loveology helpfully puts it away. This is a long quote, but I think it's really, really helpful. So track with me if you can. Think of the saying, stop crying and be a man. What, what's unmanly about crying? Does Jesus wept ring a bell? And be a man, what does that even mean? There are tons of stereotypes of masculinity in culture. So which one should I be? Should I be the 007 stylish, tough, smooth, womanizing kind of man? Or the NASCAR drinks a six pack every night and work on my Chevy man? Or the mogul power suit, I have everything man? Or my body is the temple bro man who spends every evening at 24 hour fitness looking at himself in the mirror. <laughs> and if anything, it's worse for women. The spectrum of options are even broader. Should you be the smart, educated, I have all my act together professional with just a little bit of makeup but not too much? Or the loyal, supportive, stay-at-home mom backs, packs her husband a brown bag, bag lunch every day? Or the tan, model, thin, aloof, sex goddess that men trip over? Or the all-natural, outdoorsy, no makeup, all off hiking or juicing spirulina? <laughs> what if you're none of the above? What if you're smart and funny and you also want to start a business? But you also want to be a mom. And you like girl stuff but you're not a six foot skinny fashionista. Does that make you less of a woman? The answer is no, not at all. For many of us, our understanding of what makes someone manly or feminine has been largely inherited by our culture and not the Bible. And that's the tricky thing about culture. It's what we breathe in. For something to be part of our culture, it's just assumed. If it's not assumed, it's not yet part of our culture. We just do it that way because we do it that way. That's what we do. So, Christian, uh, so children grow up absorbing their culture, and rarely does anyone tell them strictly and directly, pink is for girls. Tell me, say it with me. Pink is for girls, all right? Blue is for boys. Even though 100 years ago, pink was actually a male color. Let me share a quote with you from the Ladies' Home Journal in 1918. Pink being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. So this is one of the examples of how we have an inherited cultural stereotypes that are more nurtured than nature, more cultural than biblical. And these cultural stereotypes that we have embraced have significant consequences. Listen. If you grow up in a culture where you do not fit in the stereotypical categories for your biological sex, you can experience a lot for you. And so in our current cultural moment, when a boy is more naturally nurturing, likes art, use this. I'll turn it off. I was like, is that, is that the mic or is that my voice going? All right. In our culture, if a boy grows up with a more nurturing spirit, likes art, doesn't like wrestling and getting physical, our culture may suggest to him, or experts will literally tell him, you are actually a boy, not a girl. You're, you're a girl, not a boy. Sorry, you guys are like, what? <laughs> Isn't that the opposite of what you're trying to say, Sam? That's pretty good, right? <laughs> Rather than broadening our understanding of how manhood and womanhood is expressed through varying personality types and temperaments, 
we often hold to these rigid stereotypes and thus encouraging gender dysphoria for any of us here who don't fit in the norms. So what does it mean to be a man or woman? If we have all of these stereotypes, which ones are from God and which ones are from man? And for that, we have to look at our Bible, and if we would have time, we'd also look at multiple cultures throughout history to try to see what is more naturally biological or more consistently biological rather than our own Western culture. But for the sake of time, let's look at the Bible. I'm willing to bet that the majority of Christians have never carefully studied what the Bible says about what men and women should be like. We have just absorbed our understanding from our families, our communities and cultures, maybe heard a proof text here and there, and based all of our assumptions off of that carefully uninterpreted text. And so if you want to do that, you have to carefully comb through the entire Bible and how it talks about men and women. You have to look at commands and figure out what about, why did Paul say that to those people? Why did he say it to men and not women? And, and then from there, trying to understand what is culturally limited and what is creatively grounded, and then extrapolate that and try to apply it to our day. That is hard work, and most people are too lazy for that kind of work. They're just going to listen to their favorite preacher or author to, or their favorite political pundit to tell them what to think. As the result of that laziness, we are, or the ignorance, let me be charitable to some, we're going to either erase all of our differences or we're going to create stereotypical distinctions that are reflections of our own culture and biases. So let me give you a few examples from the Bible, a few, there are many more, to help recalibrate our understanding of what it means to be a man or woman. Let's consider King David. King David was a man's man. He killed a lion, loved the outdoors, cut the head off a giant, married a princess, led armies, conquered his enemies, and ruled as a king. Yeah? <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and yet, I was, that was my weak attempt to do uh, Tim Allen. That was, it's been a while, okay, guys? It's, be patient with me. And yet, David played the harp. See any men playing harps these days? He wrote songs. He wrote poetry. He had an eye for the beauty of the world, but he openly shared his doubt, depression, fears, and anxiety. He was deeply emotional. Or in our culture, we'd say emo. David also had a deeply intimate relationship with his best friend, Jonathan. They were together all the time. They would laugh. They would cry. They would hug. They would talk. And after Jonathan was killed, David wept openly and spoke about his affection for his friend. Is David a man or not? Consider the famous Proverbs 31 woman. She's seen as the pinnacle of womanhood for most Christian women. She does all kinds of stereotypical things that most good Christian women do. But have you ever noticed verse 16 through 18? She's working in the marketplace. She's making money. <laughs> in verse 16, the Bible says she makes her arm strong, a.k.a. strong upper body. <laughs> and she works to be profitable, verse 18. Is she a woman or not? In some cultures today, a woman doing that would be like, hey, you're falling to liberal ideology. Man, you need to tell your woman, put her in her place. She can't do that. And finally, consider Jesus, the God-man who is male, and yet Jesus is known to be gentle and lowly and humble at heart, not brash. He is both aggressive and furious at the hypocritical tax collectors, but also weeps at the death of his friend and doesn't try to hide his tears. He expresses deep emotions, and he's not afraid of it. Is he a man or not? See, there's just more 
way more than just these examples. It's hard work, but worth your time. And if we had time, we'd look at all the many commands and statements in the Bible and see why are certain ones directed to males and not females and vice versa. For example, why is Adam cursed when Adam is cursed? In chapter three, it affects his relationship with the ground. And for Eve, when she's cursed, it curses her, her relationship with her family. That's not just an accident. And so you have to do the hard work to say, what does that mean? Why does Paul say the men should raise up their hands instead of quarreling and fighting and should pray? Not because women shouldn't pray, but because there, there tends to be some sort of thing about men who like to fight instead of pray and humble themselves. Right? There's, these are hard things to do, and you need to do the work. And I encourage you, with our community, study it together. Now, let me land the plane here. How shall we now live as a church? There's so much more, guys. Some, some people would be offended, I said, guys. Um, there's so much more. Beloved, I love you. And let me, let me say this. Number one, receive and glorify God with your body. I don't know anyone ever who is perfectly happy with their body. We have so much body shame in our culture. And everything from where how we should look like down to the chronic illnesses that torment our bodies and we feel the decay or to something silly like the fact that I'm 34 and I get pimples and I can't grow a beard, right? I don't know anybody who's utterly happy with how their body is and you should not be. And what I mean by that is because if we understand the Bible teaches the fall, that means that our bodies are going to be broken. We're going to be uncomfortable. It took me till I was an adult to be comfortable and happy that I'm Korean. I grew up in a completely white Georgia suburb, and I was the only Korean. I hated being Korean. I hated that God made me Korean. I wanted to be white because white was right. White was normal. So I had to go through a process to accept how God made me. And until Jesus comes back, all of us are in that process in varying manifestations. There's going to be pain. There's going to be unmet longings. I, I wish I was like this. I wish I looked like that. Why am I so short or so fat or so big or so this or so that? We're going to be confused about what is factually, biblically true about us and what we feel to be true about us. You and I are fallen. We have imperfect bodies, and yet Scripture does not give any provisions to ignore our original design because we don't like it or because it's hard or because it doesn't resonate with us. Let me share one of many passages with you. I, I have a lot more, but 1 Corinthians 6.20. Would you read this out loud with me? For you were bought with the price. So glorify God with your body. If you are rejecting God's design for you, I call you to turn from it. Humbly accept what God has given you. And that key word is humbly. It's hard. Even if it's hard, even if it doesn't feel right at this point, reject the lie that what you feel about you is most true about you. Remember, we all have been and can be deceived about ourselves. Let God tell you what is true about yourself. Our imperfect bodies are gifts from God, and we are charged to care for them, cherish them, and glorify God with our bodies. Instead of trying to escape our bodies, we're called to live in harmony with our bodies. Your gender flows from your God-given biology God designed you with, and he did it with purpose and love. And let me just say this. If you are here this morning, and you feel a conflict between your biological sex and your gender, you are not alone. We love you. We love you. We love you. I love you. I am here for you. We are here for you. You are not alone to walk this journey. 
And we need you to walk with our mess too. We're equally needing God's grace and help together. Remember that this is a temporary reality, a momentary reality. See, the broken body of Jesus on the cross is the solution to all of our broken bodies. All of us here have sinned. Every one of you here, every one of us, me included, have sinned. All of us here have had times where we have not honored God with our bodies. We have all had times where we rejected God's design and plans for our own lives. We've grumbled, we've usurped the throne, we have tried to take things into our own hands. We've tried to pave our own way to life. And this God, though he has been rejected by all of us in numerous unspeakable ways, he made a way for us to be accepted, forgiven, and healed through the voluntary sacrifice of his son, his son's body. And everybody here and anyone here who wants your sins forgiven, who wants to have peace with God, who wants to have purpose and wants to finally give up your own authority, you can have that this morning. Jesus has made a way for you. He removed every boundary. That doesn't mean you have every question answered. That doesn't mean that you have all your ducks in a row and every tension healed. But it does mean that you know that you're a sinner and you need mercy. You need God to change your heart and your life. And you want his forgiveness and his love. And if that's you, it is available right now. If you come to him, you reject your own authority, your own control, and let him be God and receive his forgiveness and put your trust in his life and death. And not his, just his life and death, but his resurrection. Because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose with a resurrected body. And when he returned, he will come with his glorified body and give us new bodies. And I promise you, I promise you, when you see Jesus' face, it will be worth it. This struggle that we have, though it feels overwhelming and never-ending, it is temporary. It is temporary. Your suffering in your body, both psychologically, physically, and in your heart, is temporary. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, everything will be worth it. And if it doesn't feel like it'll be worth it, it's because you don't see how precious he is yet. And that goes for every one of us who struggles with our bodies for any reason. Let me give you one final call, and I can't believe I'm at 42 minutes. This is amazing. I want to call you to love the trans community. Let me share with you a stat. According to a study of 6,456 trans adults, 57% have family members who refuse to speak to them. 50% have experienced harassment at school. 65% have suffered physical or sexual violence. And 69% have experienced homelessness. That's awful. It's not just a topic, it's people. Do you feel compassion for this community? Does your heart break for them? Please repent if you don't. Having compassion for them is not optional. Please repent this morning if you have a loveless heart for this community, for these people who God loves, who are made in his image. You know, I've wondered for a long time. It's very likely we've had people who have transitioned among us in our gatherings. Sometimes it's hard to know. But I was wondering if someone were to come and be a part of our gathering, how would they be received? Someone came in with drag on, would they be 
ostracized? Would they be avoided? Would you give them just kind of a smile because you're so uncomfortable? Or would they be swarmed with love as Christ has loved you? See, all of us have different brokenness and things that are deeply troubling before God. And a lot of us have ones that are more socially acceptable right now. And so we, we can feel okay and good about our sins. And then when we see someone who struggles in a different way, we're horrified. And you're not horrified about your greed. You're not horrified by your selfishness and your lust and your pride. But then you see someone who's in drag and you're horrified by them. And you know what? You should be horrified. But you should be horrified about your own sin too. It's both of us. It's all of us. My prayer and hope is that they would be deeply loved as Christ has loved us. I want us to be like Jesus. No one raised the bar of morality and truth like Jesus. And yet, in his life, he attracted the most rejected in society. Somehow, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, was able to live in a way where he stood up to truth, did not, did not shape to the whims of culture with courage and boldness. And yet, people who are rejected and who he was talking about were drawn to him. How do we do that? I don't know, but we need the Holy Spirit to do that in us. That's a miracle. We can't do that on your own. Let me remind you that the number one goal when you are caring for someone who's trans is not to help them cure them of their dysphoria. That is a process during discipleship. That is not the number one goal. Their gender identity is important. Believe me, it's important. But remember, that's not their greatest need. What they need, what all of us here need, is the gospel. We equally are needy before the cross. We don't relate to the trans community or someone who has differences as if we've arrived and they have, and we have everything together. If you think that way, you do not understand the gospel yet. We approach them as equally needing Jesus. And then together we can go before him and find transformation in life. And so, oh, that we here, church, would joyfully and humbly receive God's design for all of us, for all of us struggle. And sometimes it feels like childbirth. And oh, that all of us here, church, would be a light and reflect God's loving heart of compassion and truth to our society. Let's be that, church. Let's pray. Father, this was an impossible message for me to preach perfectly, and indeed every message is imperfect because I'm trying to speak for you. What man can presumptuously do such a thing? And so, God, I say, Father, forgive me in any ways I misrepresented you, and if I was inaccurate to the text, would you correct me? But, Father, everything that I said that was true, let it deeply renew our thinking. Let our church not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their mind by your word. Lord, if there's anyone in our church who's struggling with their gender, Lord, I pray that compassion and love would wash over them right now in mercy. Help us be a kind of church that loves them and speaks the truth and love. Help us check our biases and our prejudice at the door. Lord, please forgive us for our judgmental hearts that we can have where we give our own sin a pass but have such vehemence towards others who struggle in ways we, we don't. Help us not be like Jonah. Oh, God, have mercy on us. And God, we pray mercy upon our city and our children. Lord, the great need is not for them to know their identity in gender. 
that is important. But Lord, we want everyone to know the gospel and to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so God, use us to be that kind of church. Teach us how to do it well. Please bring healing and hope. And now speak to everyone as we process these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.